0: There's a huge cultural impetus to spending all of your time working, and I think it massively underweights a part of life that I consider to be quite important, which is not work. Being alive is more important than working.
1: Hello and welcome to Grow Up, an ABG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkerers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and today on the show we're catching up with Ferris and Rosie Jakob, nomadic travelers and founders of Genius Steals. Ferris and Rosie have been living on the road for almost 10 years now, and along the way, they've picked up a thing or two on creativity. So today's show is entitled Top 5 Tips to Enhance Creativity from a Nomad, even if you're not one yourself. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Cossat for sponsoring this week's episode. As one of Canada's leading strategy departments and supporters of strategic planning, they have shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. So, Ferris and Rosie, please introduce yourself. Um, terrific if you could tell us a little bit about how Genius Steals uh, all got started, and uh, what's life been like on the road um, before you share your top five tips.
2: Absolutely, thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to be here. So, I'm the Rosie, yeah, part of the couple. I'm the Ferris, and we share the same last name, not because we are siblings, but we are actually a husband and wife team. We started Genius Steals now. Most. Wow. In 2013. So we've been at it for a while and we're really excited to talk about how being a nomad has inspired not just our creative thinking, but really our strategic thinking as well.
0: Yeah. And they're obviously related ideas. Um, But I guess we should probably slightly background it by saying I worked in advertising agencies and management consultancies in London, Sydney, and then in New York for five years where I met Rosie, who was working in agencies in New York as well.
2: Yes, I led social and emerging media at Saatchi and Saatchi New York before working at 360i and leading a team of strategists there. Yeah,
0: and at one point, I was the chief digital officer of McCann Erickson in New York at the flagship office, the world's largest network, as we liked to say at the time. Uh, But since then, um, we sort of took a different path, I suppose. So in 2013, I proposed to Rosie with a slightly unusual proposition.
2: Yes. Yeah. It included the more traditional marriage proposal, but it also included a proposal of let's quit our jobs and travel the world yeah. and maybe pick a new place to live, I think was implied as part of that. We'll, we'll test out some places, but we had this idea that we would end up in Australia or New Zealand. We love the Antipodes and Ferris actually has a Kiwi passport. And yeah. so we thought, okay, we'll end up there. And what actually happened was once we started traveling, we realized maybe we're not as great at decisions as we think, or maybe more likely we liked everywhere better than we liked somewhere. And it kind of felt like we were um, pulling one over on this corporate world to be able to work remotely. I know working remotely now is almost the norm. So many of us have accepted that as a one way of bringing this to life but at the time it certainly wasn't very common and we had to do a lot of explaining to clients about yes we will be in Bali or India or Thailand we had a lot of Southeast Asia travels on our first six months and so managing time zones and remote work looked a little bit different
0: yeah absolutely and I think a, a big part of it of course was geography and novelty but I think equally and this probably lands us on our first tip let's say yeah. Once we started working for ourselves and living without kind of a full-time employer, we realized how, A, valuable it is to own your own time, how much of a step change in one's existence it is to be ultimately responsible for your own time and your own income. Obviously, that comes with risk, but it also means that Monday mornings are just a very different thing than they would be when you live and work on someone else's schedule when someone else controls your calendar. And when I was at these large agencies in New York, I remember distinctly um, I would have meetings probably booked in between 10 and six every day. Mm -hmm. I would normally be triple booked in most of those meetings. And it was extremely hard to find any space to even work, let alone think creatively. And I guess the way that we talk about this often is that when we worked and lived in New York, The culture of work in New York is very focused on sort of exhibitionist Pseudo productivity. I uh,
2: yeah, I would say presence more than productivity. Exactly. Yes.
0: <laughs> presence, mm-hmm. not product.
2: People wanted to see you at your desk. They wanted you to be present in meetings. Um, and yet what we found was busy, being busy was killing creativity because no one had time to be expansive in their thinking. There had to be so reactionary. And they were also scheduled completely around the clock, as Ferris mentioned, overscheduled.
0: I mean, it was very noticeable. The only acceptable answer to the question, you know, how are you in New York was, oh, you know, busy, very busy. Because if you weren't busy, it implied you weren't very important. And that was kind of the culture that we were, I guess. Uh, yeah, it
2: was a brag. Busy it was, it was, was a hum- brag. Humble brag. Humble
0: brag, yeah. <laughs> but busyness does not lead to good creative thinking, especially if all of your time is in meetings or Zooms or... Or whatever. So I guess, yeah, it became obvious to us that busyness is the enemy of creativity. I guess that's number one. So, number so
1: carving out your own time uh, and space, it sounds like has been a, a real, uh, you know, way to inspire creativity as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, yes, because I guess our company is called Genius Deals because we have a certain thesis about what creativity is in the service of commerce for our clients, for sure. But we believe that ideas are a combinatorial function of human consciousness, by which I mean they are a function of inputs and incubation. You cannot have ideas unless you have the components of those ideas already in your head, which is simply a function of the things that you read, consume, and experience in real life.
2: Right. You have these close references. So often we look at what are our competitors doing? And that could be for our clients. We're looking within the category. That also might mean if you work in New York City, you're looking at other agencies on Madison Avenue. And then people are surprised that so much of the creative output looks the same. So I think part of giving yourself space means giving yourself that physical space to explore different cultures, different places. It it means like we could just take a different path to work and be exposed to new things. It doesn't have to mean traveling halfway around the world, but the more references that we can collect, the more that we can remix, recombine, and um, abstract into new ideas.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah.
1: Do
2: you find that you're carving out kind of thinking time
1: in your calendar as as well? Or is it more about kind of bringing in these these random um, connections from different places? Maybe it's both. So
0: it's hard to schedule inspiration and it's harder to schedule incubation to some degree. It's more that when you control your own diary, we simply will not allow meetings to happen mostly on a Monday. Today is a Monday. But it's
2: afternoon. And we made
0: an an exemption for you because we like you. But in general terms, we won't allow meetings on a Monday. We won't allow them on a Friday. So we block off time that way, rather than trying to schedule an hour of thought or an hour of uh, incubation, which is harder, I think.
2: I do think too, I'll say we both tend to tackle the problems that need, problems, challenges, work that needs more thinking time first at the start of our day when we have energy. So usually we'll exercise, have some coffee, and then you tackle those initial, um, challenges, email something that gets slotted in later in the day, because I don't always need so much, uh, mental bandwidth maybe more emotional bandwidth for some of those things but the mental challenges we certainly try to tackle when we have more energy at the start of the day and there's a natural cadence to that rather than a specific schedule that we're following
0: yeah i guess this brings us to kind of point number two When we decided to start our own business, we said, well, what do we like about how businesses work? And what do we not like about how businesses work? What do we think is better in terms of how we, for example, treat our partners and vendors. We try and make sure we pay any freelancers or vendors we work with within 48 hours because we think it's irresponsible and unfair for large corporations to make their partners wait for 30, 60, 90, 180 days if you're you know, Procter and Gamble. Um, so that didn't seem appropriate to us. Equally, we just didn't think that you had to work nine hours a day, five days a week to produce the amount of work um, necessary, but a to live, but also to be at your best. We did not think that that framework that was imposed upon us by Fordism uh, in in like the early part of last century that that forty hour work week was somehow inviolable. We thought well, that doesn't sound right either. So we didn't adhere to that convention. At the time, obviously, having an office was normative. Now, there's a huge conversation, (laughs) as Rosie mentioned earlier, about remote working and whether or not an office is really a useful thing to have in every possible situation. Uh, But we were like, well, we don't need an office, so we're not going to have one, Um, and so on. So so kind of thinking about the nature of the businesses that we both admired and had experienced, we thought about, well, how would we do it if we had a fresh slate? And we did have a fresh slate. So we did (laughs) it the way we we wanted it to be. And that's kind of how we got to to here. I mean, it's been going for 10 years, so it seems to be working okay.
2: I think also when we talk about challenging conventions, I mean we're, we could talk about it from a challenger brand perspective, Mm. but more generally, if we think about creativity, it isn't just about creating art. As Farrah said, we're talking about commercial creativity. We're trying to impact the bottom lines of brands and businesses. And if routine tasks can be handled routinely, then these, um, you know, less routine tasks, these new problems, they require creativity. And what we think of as creativity is non-obvious problem solving. So when we challenge conventions, that gives us a way to be non-obvious in nature. That yeah. might mean that we are are challenging our own beliefs or it might be we're challenging beliefs of consumers, the category culture overall.
0: Yeah. That which can be automated will be automated. It is the kind of endless urge for efficiency that corporate like, uh, owners and shareholders require, that means that that was necessarily going to happen, right? So you have to have a non-automative function. And we can probably, you know, divert slightly into machine learning or AI creativity, <laughs> but I think we're a little way off before that's going to be a viable uh, replacement for humans. Maybe an interesting companion or tool for sure, but not a replacement. But, gone. on.
1: Yeah. No, I was just going to say, so, so, so I'm just trying to like, it sounds like your tip number two is to challenge conventions and to keep the frameworks that work for you and build the new ones. Uh, if they don't, is that,
0: is yeah. that how we summarize that one? It's not so much just basic contrarianism. It's more not accepting the conventions that seem to be, you know, the way we've always done things is the way we should do things. It's refusing to believe that statement entirely and saying, no, we'll do things the best way possible for the thing at hand. Not simply assume that we have to act like every other company, act like every other anything, you know?
1: And, and I imagine traveling to the extent that you do and seeing all the different cultures and different people that you are, um, you come across. I mean, your, your conventions must get challenged all the time.
0: A hundred percent. So what is normal to you is simply a function of where you happen to be. And, and as soon as you begin to travel a lot, you realize that very quickly. There's a whole set of associations that are kind of embedded in how you expect things to work, which are simply convention. They're not in any way the best way of doing something.
2: Right. People talk about best practices and all these 10 tips to write the best this or to get to the best that. And I think that we lose a lot of nuance there, but we also tend to take something that's been printed on the internet as truth when we all know that anyone can write and publish anything on the internet. And no matter what you're trying to prove or argue, you can find proof points from from someone. So rather than just taking one thing as truth, being willing to say, like, I don't know if I believe that. I want to figure out maybe why that might not be true.
0: Yeah, critical thinking is always required, required, and, and usually quite useful. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah,
1: w- was that was that your third tip? Or you with-
0: <laughs> I would say <laughs> the third tip probably, probably comes hard. around kind of what you were talking about. So by being forced to encounter new cultures with new contexts and essentially try and work out how to get by, you know, how do I buy a coffee? Where do I get a SIM card? How are brands operating in this market that allow me to navigate the commercial environment that I'm in, et cetera, right? means you're constantly exposed to new stimuli And, and habituation, which is kind of the corollary of busyness. Habituation is the death of creativity. Habituation turns your brain off because your brain wants to be maximally efficient, right? It's a cognitive miser. So, you may have had this experience. People often have. If you commute to the same office for years and years and years, you'll get to the office and have no recollection mm-hmm. of your commute. So it'll happen quite frequently because your brain just edits it out.
2: Could be going to the grocery store, the tube
0: station, anything you do with that level of frequency, your brain will begin to edit out and habituate to it because it's not new stimulus. So your brain doesn't need to worry about it. And I think that's kind of where the novelty part is really important because one of the things we like to say, I guess, this is. Tip number three, three. Yeah.
2: don't be a prisoner of your preferences. I think interrogating our own opinions is really important. Reminding ourselves to get out of our comfort zone. Yes, there is certain dry shampoo that I think smells great and I really like it. But when I'm traveling to most other parts of the world, it is not available. So I can either choose to be sad, frustrated, disappointed about that, or open myself up to the world of whatever dry shampoo exists in these other um countries, I think. But part of this of not being a prisoner of your own preferences is challenging your ego. Our ego is such a powerful force we love being right. And once we, you know, we, we tend to always think we're right. If we didn't think we were right, we would change our minds. Yeah. Um, and yet even with new information, sometimes when we encounter new information, we double down on our existing belief because the ego is so powerful.
0: The backlash effect, I believe it's called.
2: So reminding yourself that it's okay to be wrong. You know, you can only ever make decisions with whatever information you have at that given time and if you do encounter more information being willing to change or update your opinions yeah. but that also means things like we were in Bulgaria for a conference and our host there said We really want to take you to this restaurant. And the number one specialty here is horse. Now, I have ridden horses and pet horses, but at the time I had never eaten horses. And I immediately kind of felt that disgust rise up in myself. And instead of saying, you know, like, I'm not going to do this. I was like, okay, if this specialty is horse and this is the place to eat horse, then I guess let's try that out. It was not my most favorite food. It wasn't something that I'm craving today and I'm dying to get back to this force eating. (laughs) Oh God, (laughs) Paris, you can't get back on it if it's on the ground or on your plate. Um, But yeah, you know, being willing to have those experiences that also opens up your own adjacent possible. So if you don't know that rocks exist and that they can be lifted up, then you'll never know that you can look underneath a rock and see that there's something else there. Right. So constantly exposing ourselves to ideas that are further from our comfort levels ends up opening those wider doors to other concepts and ideas.
0: Yeah, I yeah, I think when you're younger people have a stronger tendency to sample different domains of culture and content to sort of work out who they want to be and who, what they like. But as we get older we have a tendency to go I know what I like. I like these kinds of movies, these kinds of books, these kinds of foods, et cetera, et cetera. And we narrow our experience down and down and down based yes. on what we think preferences are. Yes, absolutely. But that massively diminishes our experience of novelty and of different things, uh, and maybe to the detriment both of creativity. And you might not know you like something that you didn't have before.
1: Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it sounds like obviously there's some adaptability there, some flexibility, some nimbleness. Mm. Um, I don't know why this Nadalian- story- resilience. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't know why this story stands out so much in my head. I remember actually reading one of your newsletters, um, Rosie, and I remember, I think you guys mentioned that you never travel with checked in luggage now because you had lost them <laughs> when you were traveling yeah. and mm-hmm. had to get a friend of yours to help help you out there. And I can only just imagine the agility and the resilience and kind of open to new ways of uh, thinking that, that that had on you. Funny you should mention yeah,
0: that.
2: Yeah, it was yeah. so <laughs> weird. It's still in my brain. It took British Airways like more than a month to get us our luggage. And they kept saying we can get it anywhere in the world, but they couldn't get it to wherever we were before we were moving. And then it turned out that anywhere in the world was really actually just airports, not islands in remote places. Um So, yeah, we 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 survived that. We learned a lesson. We tried to not check bags. Um, we ended up checking a bag this time on our way to the UK. Guess what and happened? And British Airways yeah. lost <laughs> our luggage again. Yeah. Um, it did not take a whole month to get back to us. But the resilience is key. Adaptability, flexibility, yes. Our flight was canceled. We had to deal with all of that trauma. And you know, you could see with people at the airport, they were getting increasingly angry mm. and infuriated. And Ferris and I, in that situation, we tend to not escalate because the people who are on the ground, they can't control the plane's mechanical difficulties or where your luggage is. They're just trying to help. However, I think there's something to be said for energy and our emotional availability. So at the time when the flight was delayed, we're like, okay, you know what? It is what it is. We can deal with this. We'll go back. We'll spend another night in Nashville. We'll fly out tomorrow. We had a lot of energy and excitement about coming to the UK when our bags were lost on the other side and we had already been traveling on this delayed ticket and had been downgraded from BA because they couldn't get us in the same class. We were all of those things. It was much harder to deal with in the UK at six in the morning landing with very little energy than it was having had a full night of sleep and starting that trip. So there's got to be something in there too about, yes, resilience is important, but also giving yourself time and space to recover so that you can offer that resilience uh, to the world and the grace and compassion to yourself.
0: You have to fill your cup and you can't burn the candle at all four or five ends of life, health, social, family, work, (laughs) and so on. Right. Like you you just can't. Right. So you have to make, Allowances for something will be neglected if you try and do all of the things.
2: And remin- I think part of the grace and compassion thing. The reason I mentioned that is that there are things we want to be good at, and sometimes it's easier than others. So reminding yourself that we strive to be have positive attitudes and to show resiliency and adaptability, and sometimes it's still really infuriating when you have these things happen to you and you have to go, you know, this is making me angry and that's okay. I'm going to live through that as well.
0: Yeah. And I think this can bring us somewhat segue to our fourth possible tip in the sense that I think that we culturally, especially in the United States of America, that sort of very much likes the idea of working. There's a huge cultural impetus to spending all of your time working that any time spent not working is probably unproductive and that you should have a side hustle and should be doing drop shipping. And it's just a lot. It's asking a lot. And I think it massively underweights a part of life that I consider to be quite important, which is not work. (laughs) The bit of life called not work, which we kind of almost allied culturally speaking. Now there's like recreation and and work. There's no being alive is more important than working. I guess that's hugely important. Mental health is is
2: absolutely critical and creating space for yourself is key. But our fourth tip is to make your life, your life's work. And this comes from a, a time when we were at a dinner party hosted by some very lovely clients with some very senior people from fancy companies. Um, and one of these people said, let's, let's start this dinner off by going around the table and talking about our life's work. And as it was going around, it became very clear that people's quote unquote life's work were these, you know, product launches internally at tech companies well, and, and ad sometimes. campaigns. And, and Faris and I were kind of pinching each other and poking each other under the table. I mean, it, it felt sad to us that this is your life's work. And when it got to us, Ferris said, you yeah, know, none of that stuff is that important to me. I mean, we live in a capitalist society. We're required to spend money for goods and services. So yes, we have to make money, but my life's work is my life. And we're constantly trying to think about a feedback loop that says, what did we enjoy doing? What did we not enjoy doing? How do we do more of what we liked and less of what we didn't like? Now we all end up doing some things that we don't like sometimes, or maybe we didn't even realize we weren't going to like them until we've done them. But Then taking that information and going, how can I apply that to make my life something that is more enjoyable to me? That absolutely impacts your work output.
0: Of course, 100%. Yeah, I mean, it feels like it becomes an afterthought, right? Thinking about our strategic and creative brain power, we apply so much of it in the service of clients and career, and we tend to not apply at least as much to making our life something that we both love and can optimize over time.
2: Yeah, so we always tell people, you know, your most important project is you. So, thinking about what makes you happy and also being willing to adjust that belief because what might make us happy one day could change and the next day not be so fulfilling. So, having those conversations with yourself and figuring out what you need in order to be a happy, healthy individual. I mean, that all plays back into, again, creative and strategic output. It's just something that we don't talk about so much because when you work in these big corporate environments, they don't really want you to focus on yourself. They want you to feel like a cog in a bigger part of machine and to think that you have to play by these rules rather than focus on something that makes you happy, fulfilled, satisfied, etc. It is
0: interesting, right? So um, at least in the USA fiction readership is largely a a, a woman's thing. Like 80% of fiction buyers in America are women and men after a certain age become a vanishing error in terms of fiction consumption. And one of the theses around why this is, is because if you live in a hyper-competitive society, wasting time reading stories, apparently, isn't as useful as reading some sort of highly kind of potent self-help book. But when they say self-help, what they mean is, Meditation for productivity, or it's all about being a better employee or a better entrepreneur, potentially. Although you know that's in terminal decline in America because there is no safety net, etc. But so it's all in the focus of of pursuit of money and work rather than like no, just refocusing on helping yourself for, for the sake of helping yourself, not to make you a more productive piece of capitalism. Absolutely,
1: it sounds like uh the way that you have chosen to live and work this nomadic lifestyle is a bit of a balance of the two you you, you literally yeah. are making your life uh, your your life's work
2: yeah. I mean we are trying every day I think it's certainly something that we try to live by and during the pandemic that looked different right I experienced anxiety for the first time that wasn't something I was familiar with so normally I'm a very social person I like getting to meet and chat with other people but during the stay home sort of, time period when we were grieving a loss of income and a, gross, a loss of lifestyle as well from from traveling, I, I didn't have the emotional bandwidth and I didn't have the desire to chat with strangers over Zoom and hear about what they were working on. And I really tried to express that in honest terms and tell people... You know, it sounds like you're working on a really cool project, but in order to fill my cup, I need to take that hour of my day and spend it doing yoga or reading my Kindle and not necessarily focusing on
0: someone else's work project. Totally. And to your point, managing our existence is one of our clients, essentially. It takes up as much time. (laughs) Yes. Because, you know...
2: That's such a good point. You
0: make a decision usually once a year at most about where you're going to sleep on the regular. Right. And we don't make that decision in annual allotments. We make it on a pseudo weekly basis, which means there's constantly logistics, constant decision making, travel planning, all kinds of things that just take a great deal of energy and time in order to make our life work the way we'd like it to. Which means we do have uh, an assistant and a business partner who work virtually and and, and nomadically as we do, Um, because it's just logistically extremely complex to live like this, but it's worth it to us
1: perfect well okay so i have let me see if i've got all these so busyness is the opposite of creativity was tip number one tip Mm -hmm. number two i don't know if i've captured it quite was it it challenging conventions. yeah challenging conventions. especially local ones especially local ones tip number three don't be a prisoner to your preferences tip number four make your life your life's work what's your last tip number five
2: Okay. Tip number five. So based on our company name, Genius Steals, we believe that originality is a myth that nothing comes from nothing and that you should steal from everywhere around the world, but the same is lame. So don't just copy, uh, build upon that which came before you and look to diverse sources of inspiration to remix rather than just what everyone else is doing.
0: Yeah. The idea of originality is a sort of weird creative handcuff that makes no sense in my, the way I think about it, there's no way of being original because let's say you're writing something. Well, you didn't invent the words you're using or the concepts necessary to communicate clearly. So you're building endlessly on a foundation of other ideas and all ideas are made from existing ideas. Nothing comes completely out of the blue. And if it did, nobody would understand it anyway, making it functionally useless.
2: Right. People often ask us, they say, oh, well, how do I know if if I'm doing a good job and stealing, or if I and just being too much of the same. And I think there's a really great real rule of thumb, which is, do you feel comfortable sharing your inspiration sources? If you do, then that's probably you've done enough to transform and adapt that idea. If you can say, here's who inspired me, I took from this, this, and this, and I feel comfortable sharing. If you feel embarrassed to show your original inspiration sources, you probably haven't done enough to adapt or transform to make it yours. So I'm craving some
1: inspiration sources. Where have you guys been in the last 30 days? Like, give me some cities and countries and and what's been inspiring you? Because, you know, I have been sat in this chair for the last two years. So I need (laughs) (laughs) some inspiration.
2: Well, I will say we spent the first uh, part of our year in Mexico City and traveling around Mexico. And that was incredible because there was so much street art. And a lot of the street art had political meaning or inspirational uplifting. It, It gets you down a rabbit hole, right? You see one piece of art, you start looking up who this artist is. And then all of a sudden, you have 10 new people on Instagram to follow who are creating amazing art. And then equally, in terms of challenging our own preferences you know, we tried things like there was, what's the fungus from the corn that we ate? There was a fungus from a corn. It's a thing. I'm sure people will hear this and have the name for it and I'll sound silly for not remembering it. Um, or, you know, we were just in the Cumberland mountains in Tennessee and our sweet neighbor, Steve, who lives across the street and he's probably in his mid eighties, he prepared beef tongue for us mm. and brought that over. Um, so yeah, inspiration from both inside the U.S. and outside the U.S. and then being here in the UK, I'm actually finding a lot of inspiration just in our walks. Ferris and I love to walk and talk and it's a great way for us to connect on things that aren't work related, but also to force ourselves to just open our eyes. Yeah. We have this app. Called well, <laughs> yes,
0: exactly. I was going to mention. <laughs> okay, this helps tell, a lot, yeah, no, no, so go, no, go on. No.
2: We use this app called Seek and I basically think of it as Pokemon Go for plants and animals and it is free to use, S-E-E-K. You just hold it up to a bug, a plant, and it tells you right then and there what it is. Um, so that's been helpful for spiders and snakes because it makes them seem less scary. And then it's been really fun for flowers and wildflowers and challenging ourselves to, um, remember new, new things.
0: Yeah. And I guess also old things because I was staying with my dad at the moment and, um, very kindly he has the last two or three decades I've <laughs> uh, been storing my comic books from when I was a child and I've now got the chance to go back and look at them for the first time because we, we don't get to spend much time here often but now we, we we can and that's been fascinating too going back and reminding myself what I loved as a child and, and what inspired me about those things and, and yeah that, that's been really fun too so old things new things
2: And then I keep a list of questions on my phone. I'm just a total dork in that way. Whenever anyone asks me a great question, I'm like, okay, let me write that down. So I have a list of the best questions. It's very extensive now. And I use that just to talk to our Uber drivers, the random stranger sitting next to me on the plane and friends near and far. So one of our favorite questions recently to ask people has been, if you were a bar, What kind of bar would would you be? And you'll get all sorts of answers and inspiration just in how people describe either the dive bar, the bougie hotel bar that they would be and what they would serve and what the ambiance would be. So I think those also fill us with inspiration and having sources near and far close, close friends to respond and also total strangers. It just gets you thinking about something Different than your normal routine,
1: and and so where are you guys off to next? And and i um, and you know are you are
2: you Canada bound at all? Where are you coming back to North America? We'd love to be. We'd love to be. We're in London mostly until the end of June, with a quick trip to Portugal and a quick trip to Italy for me, and then we'll be in the U.S. for a month, and then we'll be back in Europe, mostly traveling around until probably early October. We have a wedding at the end of September in France. So generally speaking, we try to be in Europe in the summer months because of the nice weather here during those times. I'm allergic to the cold. I really strongly dislike it. It impacts my happiness and mental
0: health. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, (laughs) In general, I guess, historically speaking, a great deal of our year was planned out around speaking engagements so between approximately February and September every year, we would basically plan our travel based on who was booking us to speak where. In-person engagements have not really come back yet. We've got a couple on the books.
2: Both in London right now? That
0: are solid. And there are a couple on the books in Australia and New Zealand that are probably like not entirely solid yet, I would say, but we'll see. Um, because uh, obviously people are still anxious around these things. And, and, and the whole world is at different stages of its... Uh, you know, pre, during, post uh, pandemic considerations. So, yeah,
2: I would say we only really know with certainty where we'll be until July 11th. But things start it's quite you know, specific,
0: though, isn't it? J- yeah. July 11th. Okay,
2: two <laughs> no months. No idea. Two months. July 12th. July 12th. No, is a who complete the fuck mystery knows.
0: where we'll be. Yeah. But,
2: um, yeah. But, yeah.
1: what's happening on july 11th i'm curious (laughs) maybe
2: a flight i just have yeah there's only a a accommodation booked for july 11th but we'll figure it out before then
1: (laughs) yeah Yeah. amazing and so and so is this is this it is this uh do you think you're going to be doing this for the next few years and i imagine if we'd asked you back in 2013 how long this was going to be for you. you wouldn't have thought you'd be still here
2: Oh, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think going back to kind of our earlier comment on you can only ever make information, make decisions with the best information you have at any given time. Right now, we're loving it. When we had the stay home orders in 2020, we both were, um, we both discovered just how painful it was for us to stay still. I don't think we could have articulated that. In fact, I think pre-2020, we were trying to figure out how we could spend longer periods of time in places. And then once we were confronted that with that, be careful what you wish for, we realized, nope, this is not the life for us. Thank God we have figured out what fulfills us and what keeps us happy. Will that change? I mean, probably preferences change. I imagine, and you know, some years time there will be different things that make us happy, and maybe we'll end up in Mexico City for a couple of years or in Mumbai for a couple of years. I'm certainly not.
0: It's a bit hot there at the moment.
2: Yeah, I'm not going to close off the pathway to staying more still, but I think it's unlikely that in the next couple of years, that would happen. It just doesn't seem exciting to us. Yeah.
0: It'd be hard to decide where.
2: Yeah. How do we, how, that is the other problem. People always ask us, you know, okay, well, like, when are you going to settle down and where I'm like, well, I have no idea where we would be because how, how does one make that decision without a job in one place or a family in one place? It's, we love so many places that it's, it's really tough to Get into our heads that we would have to stay in one place and one place only.
0: So yeah, for the time being, I think we'll keep doing what we've been up to, and if we decide we don't want to, we'll stop for a bit.
2: Yeah, yeah. It
1: sounds like traveling just makes you want to travel more. Which,
0: yeah, (laughs) yeah. Especially, I mean, like even in the last decade, it's remarkable how much has changed around the world. How many places that were very remote have become developed? How homogenous global branding now is even compared to 10 years ago where there's just so much more similarity specifically brand and commercial similarity in different places than there used to be
2: even font choices we will be in india wisdom script yeah wisdom script (laughs) was like being used so frequently um we could go on but i i we will constantly take pictures and it's like even when you don't can't read the language you'll notice the same sort of okay, now everyone's using these tall skinny fonts or everyone's pairing these wider fonts with the wisdom script. And that self-similarity is is interesting. Yeah,
0: the world's talking to itself and observing itself endlessly in faster and faster latency cycles. And so things get more the same because of that. Because we all, and you know, it's what you said, genius steals. We tend to look around ourselves and see what other people are doing in order to make certain kinds of decisions, especially design and creative and innovation and product decisions that are all kind of increasingly globalized because big companies are transnational entities now. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, no, really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. We love these five tips. And, and I'm glad to know that even though, you know, most of us can't travel as much as you guys, that we can still find ways to uh, enhance our creativity with these. So thanks very much.
2: Absolutely, Thank you so much for having us. And I just wanted to end to say, you know, there is one really great source of inspiration. We might be biased ourselves, but we do put out a newsletter called Strands of Genius that happens every Tuesday, which Ferris and I curate. And then every Thursday, we have a guest curator, someone who we've met or been introduced to around the world who's creative thinking we want to spotlight. And I'm not just proud of our open rate, but I'm also proud of the comment that we got that said, you know, I. I love this because even when it doesn't help me specifically with my job, it absolutely makes me a more interesting dinner date. So whether you're looking for inspiration for work in the creative advertising marketing fields, or just looking to be a better dinner date, I'll I'll offer up um, geniussteals.substack.com as a way to inspire.
1: Yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining today's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Next week, we'll be catching up with Marsha Shander on how to tame your inner beast. See you then.